Hi everyone, welcome to Third Spacing, the podcast where we explore important issues on the peripheries of clinical medicine in Singapore. I am your host, Caitlin. In this episode, we talk to Dr. Angela Tan, whose work spans palliative care, life coaching, as well as intimacy coaching. We focus today on sexual health in Singapore, the limitations of medicalizing sexual health, and how we can do our part to improve the sexual health environment here. Good afternoon, Dr. Angela. Thank you so much for joining us today. Could you please introduce yourself to our listeners? Hello, uh, my name is Angela, and I'm really excited to share with you what I know about sexual wellness so that the listeners out there, which I believe to be a good number of healthcare professionals, can understand a little bit more about sexual wellness outside what we taught in school because I think we were undertaught about sexual wellness yeah. in school. I'm aware that other than sexual wellness, you also cover other areas of health. Maybe could you tell me a bit more about that? In the daytime, I actually work in the community sector where I service palliative patients as well as geriatric patients. Then the whole big question is, you know, how did all this thing come together, right? Yeah, how yeah. can you be a sexual wellness physician together with doing geriatric care and palliative care? Well, I would say that actually they have a similar thread. They are all taboo and difficult topics. Mm, you know, okay. death and yes, sex. Yes. So what then really challenged me when it comes to such topics is how do I mm-hmm. familiarise myself with these domains and be comfortable about death, be comfortable about sex mm. so that when I talk to people about it, it was as though I'm talking to them about the weather. And this is mm. where my training as a life coach came in very nicely. When I started training as a life coach, first year after I graduated, because I realised that well, medical school hasn't prepared very well for me to handle the world. So like life coaching, maybe could you explain what mm. your work entails in that aspect? You know, a sports coach, mm. kind of coach a person on sports. Mm. So a life coach, coach a person on life, doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, my life is perfect, mm. you know, I'm actually living the high life of anybody. But it's simply, I put an effort to understand how life works. Mm. For example, one of the things that's often talked about nowadays is mental wellness. Yeah. Then when it comes to mental wellness, as a life coach, then I have to know how the psyche works that triggers a stress response, an anxiety response, mm. and then how do we navigate through those things. So I've helped individuals transit in terms of different phases of their lives, from school to work, for example. Yeah. Now in my intimacy coaching is about how do I work with couples such that they transit from single life to married life. And for those who are married and have children, how do they you know, navigate the challenges around having kids and having sex at the same time? So I'm aware that you earned your medical qualifications before subsequently training in sexual wellness yes. as well as life coaching. Mm. Could you tell us more about the similarities and differences in how sexual health was taught in these different platforms or different courses? Well, I would say in medical school, it was really, really the anatomy mm-hmm. and how orgasm work was through the parasympathetic and sympathetic responses. Right. Okay. You know, So <laughs> it was very technical. And when I had my advanced fashion medicine training, there was a lot more to that. For example, do you actually know that a person with a spinal injury can have an erection by mere stimulation? Oh, okay. So the joke goes like that. So um, this guy, a young man who had a road traffic accident, mm. his injury was somewhere in T12. And then his girlfriend is gorgeous. <laughs> she walked in mm. and he didn't have any response. Then the nurse came in, she was cleaning him and he had a response. So how do you explain that? So that goes to show that there's a lot more to understand about how the body works rather yeah. than what we did in medical school. 
So these are some of the differences. Did you notice any similarities in how tax and wellness was taught in these different areas? I would say very little because it's really a subspecialty on its own. Medicine was great in terms that it built me the foundation to understand physiology and anatomy mm-hmm. and how everything works. So when that advanced topic came in, it was a lot easier to understand. Interestingly, on the other hand, mm. some of the trained specialists who came to attend the class had a hard time to understand how the mind and the heart works. And that was what life coaching gave me. The understanding ah. of how the mind and the heart works together in the relationship. Because sex is not just about the physical intimacy, mm. it's also about the emotional connection. So there's a lot of play around how two people fall in love with each other and how they remain in love. And that's a very psychological-based topic. Let's think a little bit about what you do every day in your intimacy coaching work. Mm-hmm. Could you describe what your typical patient profile is like? Well, generally, I do get a fair bit of couples. Um, I do notice that couples who are in a committed relationship, they are more ready to work out challenges. Most of them want to conceive or some of them who have had children and they want to find back the passion that they had about sex. Right. So they are more committed to make things work. So when it comes to young couples, I have quite a number of vaginismus cases. Usually, both parties are virgins mm. and they have no idea how the bedroom works and they struggle a lot. You know, when it gets older and you try to learn something new, the older mm. we are, the more uptight we are, the more fearful we're doing the wrong things. Yeah. And it causes a lot of tension in the bedroom. And mm. once that happens, erection fails. The girl gets tight mm. as well. And mm. then this whole vicious cycle enhances inability to have sex in the bedroom. How do these clients find their way to you? For a while, it was word of mouth. Mm-hmm. And then I started to put things online. Mm. I'm starting to build up my Facebook page and my website. So I guess this is getting a bit of attention that way. Okay. So do you ever have patients who go through the mainstream medical yes. route and then find you? Yes, they did. How is it like for them? So they do realise that in the mainstream gynecologist, mm. not saying that they're doing anything wrong, mm. but just that they're very focused on the physical aspects of things. You know, if you can put a speculum inside, mm-hmm. you're most likely okay. But that's not true for sex because sex is not just about insertion. It's about the whole connection, the intimacy and the pleasure part. Mm. And if a couple have a lot of taboo and a lot of shame and unsaid around what sex is, Mm. it's difficult for them to enjoy sex per se. And you do need a series of penetrations in a way or trusting in order for the man to ejaculate successfully. And if this takes a bit too long, it can be very uncomfortable for the female. Whereas yeah. not the, a speculum exam is just an in-out, it's just a one-off yeah. thing. So it does take a lot of effort to look into the psychological makeup of the couple and what are the constraints that they have and very stepwise approach before penetrative sex becomes the end point. Which is also the problem here because when we are so caught up with having penetrative sex as the only form of sex, mm. we don't let the body warm up and build up to enjoy the touches of each other. Thinking about the context of, say, someone who goes to a gynecologist because they're having difficulties enjoying sex. Mm-hmm. At the same time, there's the fact that maybe the gynecologist took a very physical, anatomical approach right. to it. But it's also very difficult to bring up this kind of thing yes, la, and to really yes. go deep into this conversation about how comfortable you are Definitely. with your own body and yep. your partner's body and all that. So what do you think are the limitations of mainstream medicine and how do you think you overcome them when it comes to your intimacy coaching work? For one, I don't have a long sneaking queue outside my room. My appointments are all prefixed mm. in a way that I ensure there's adequate time of at least an hour to an hour and a half per couple. 
So it really gives me the time to understand them and for them to understand the topic or the challenges they're going through. So it's about slowly building up the confidence and building up their safety to be able to share openly or what they think of what's going on. So I guess that's missing in the mainstream because, you know, a doctor's room is pretty sterile. It doesn't give you the cozy feeling of just wanting to share about anything and you're just there to try to fix a problem versus, you know, being listened to, which I think mm. is an important aspect that I'm offering here. Since you also work as a palliative care doctor and you have mm-hmm. worked as a doctor-doctor, you know, right. in general, right? Yes. Do you feel like there's a difference in the doctor-patient relationship compared to, say, therapist and a client? I really guess it depends on the environment and setup. Mm. For example, when I do home palliative care, the mood is a lot more relaxed because right. I'm in the patient's house. I do not have another sneaking long queue as well. I've ensured there's enough time for the patient to share about their thoughts about their dying process. And I remember the days that I worked in the polyclinic, I had to see like a hundred patients in a day at times. So there's no way that I could offer listening here even though I can. I can imagine the snaking queue and the two to three minute consults because that was exactly what I was experiencing during my postings. It just didn't feel like there was enough time and... Is that why you you found yourself branching off towards home-based yep. medicine? Yeah, because mm. I realised that even in the wards, there wasn't time. Yeah, I was rounds. busy, <laughs> rounds, and after that you try to grab your lunch, and yeah, then you do yeah. your changes, you chase out on the labs, yeah. you do your patient's update, and the day goes by. Yeah. Just like that, you don't really have time to relate to the patient. Yeah. And you're in for three days, five days, you fix your problem and off they go. Yes. You don't see what happened before and after they go home. That's why I know I really enjoy home care because mm. it really gives me a sense of what's happening in the patient's house the way it is. Like the beauty of home care, the moment the door opens, you know what is the care status. It's a very personal kind of understanding of the patient that you get yeah. to have. How do you think your experiences in medical school have contributed to this path that you have now come to take? I'm not sure about medical school itself itself, mm. but I think life happens. When I was in my fifth year, my old grandmother was diagnosed with terminal colon cancer. Mm. And it's a huge experience for me. I thought that I was about to graduate and I could be a doctor, but yet I couldn't save her. So that thought was really awful. And I had then come to contact with palliative physicians, mm. which made me feel otherwise. So that was, you know, an inspiration for me to delve into palliative care. And because of this whole experience, I really questioned what life and death was. And that got me to start searching what life can be more of. Because mm. as a doctor, I was trained to save lives. But it was a very mechanical and technical thing. I didn't know what was the marrow of life about. I didn't know what was the purpose and meaning of life about. I was lost mm. at 25 year old. And that search brought me to life coaching which allowed me to have a deeper sense of who I am as an individual and allowed me to see what else I'm capable of. Mm. So I would say these experiences brought me to who I am today. Jumping back to the you know, sexual health and medicine, did you have an interest in sexual wellness since... Well, not, not at the yeah. very, very beginning. As I guess with all doctors, we always had this mindset that what is the next graduate program you're going to take? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it was MBBS, then it was Master in the Family Medicine. And then I did a gra- graduate diploma in acupuncture because mm-hmm. I wanted to know how Western Medicine and Eastern Medicine blends together. And then after that, 
creative came up. I was the first batch, so I joined that. Ah, okay. And along the way, while I was building all these medical credentials, I was also building on my life coaching skills. Mm. And I started to get very interested in relationships yeah, versus okay. just coaching a person on their results of performance coaching. Because I realized there's so much intricacy around how two people come together and make a deep connection. So that was something that prompted me, hey, if a person has relationship problem, sex will also be a problem. If a person's yeah. sex has a problem, Relation- relationship mm-hmm. has a problem. And that was where I start to see that my medical knowledge can be a good add-in to this whole relationship coaching sector. That was the start of the search of how do I then train myself to know more about sexual medicine? And I realised that there was nothing as such in our local setting. Um, so it took me a while to find a suitable programme that was based in Europe, which allowed me to further my studies in that area. This programme that you took was based in Europe. Did you find that you know, your classmates had a very different attitude towards sex and all that, given the fact that they probably weren't from Singapore? Well, it was yeah. a very international class. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So we had people who are from India and mm. Malaysia as well. Okay, and even okay. Saudi Arabia, Egypt, um, they are very conservative as well. Uh-huh. Okay, and then we had people in different parts of Europe mm. and the States. But interestingly, all of us in our culture, there is some form of taboo. It's just the gradation of it. Mm. But it's there. Okay. And it was a very good session for all of us because this whole network allowed us to see that all of us face a similar problem and how can we work together despite the difference in culture and backgrounds and really serve the community that way. I'm just thinking this whole union between medicine, life coaching, intimacy, definitely there are gaps within mainstream medicine Mm -hmm. in terms of how Mm -hmm. we approach sex and wellness. At the same time, I also see that sex is being very medicalized. Mm. Is this something that is increasing over time or has it always been this way, the medicalization of sex? And what are some implications of that? I would guess any problem mm. that lands up in the doctor's room get medicalized, including breastfeeding. I am still breastfeeding for the last two years. Mm. So it has been quite a journey. And it really upsets me that among doctors, ourselves, well, I'm not saying everybody, but yeah. there's a good number out there who does the work and there's some people who are not keen to find out how can they better their knowledge for their patients. And it's scary to keep hearing breastfeeding mums that say, I was told to dump my milk because I was given augmented. Okay. I was given diclofenac. By the way, these are very safe for breastfeeding. Yes. Okay. So I would say, yes, medicalization happens very frequently because that is like a safe way for doctors to know how to handle something they are not sure of in the room. Sometimes I'm like, oh, okay, there are these gaps in my knowledge and I feel like these gaps are just going to be there if I carry on with the mainstream education that I'm currently on. And when I try and think, how can we fit more into the curriculum? It's like, hey, there's no space or so. No, you can't, you can't, yeah. Yeah, so how do you think this theme of doctors being the ones who come into contact with a lot of issues in life Mm -hmm. and yet not necessarily being equipped to mm. handle them. Mm-hmm. Not everybody wants to take a full life coaching course definitely, and all that. Definitely. Yeah. So how would you advise us medical students, doctors, all that, to be more equipped to help patients mm-hmm. in, in ways other than their medical needs? Definitely. I mean, I've been teaching medical school for the last, what, five, six years? Mm-hmm. And there's one thing that I consistently tell all my students. If you don't know, say you don't know. That humility that we all have is going to make that change. Versus insisting that we are right. If you don't know, you can either refer out to somebody or you can check. You know, I remember yeah. there was once I was seeing a patient. He keep telling me that he has this spontaneous diarrhea and vomiting mm. every now and then. Mm. 
Mm. But I could never kind of figure out what's the reason. It's not gastroenteritis. It's not reflux or anything. Mm. And then he says whenever that happens, that he will just be totally lethargic and wiped out for the mm. whole entire day. And I just couldn't put my head around it. So I did a search and I realised that it was migraine that okay. didn't present it with headache. But he had kind of a prodrome kind of thing. And then yeah. the vomiting happened, diarrhea happened. And it was just migraine. You see, so as much as medical school and post-grad school has taught me a lot of things, it didn't teach me about all the forms of how migraine can be presented other than a headache. So I guess this is where we said we don't know. Let me find out. I think something that I feel is missing as I go through my schooling now, I realise that female sexuality is something that's very missing, whether it's in school or just in general, you know, in the market, when we think of products like Viagra, I can't think of a female equivalent. No, there isn't. Is female sexuality something that's underlooked? Yes, because after all, for a long time, we live in a very much patriarchy society. And even if you look at the construct of porn, it is very male-driven. The number of people who visit porn sites, you're looking at 70% who are males. Mm. And that is their target audience that they're targeting. And that's where we learn sex from, most of us, right? We yeah. didn't have a full sex ed in yep. our local setting at this moment in time. So most of us actually learn sex from porn. Mm-hmm. And that was the image that we had. It's about male pleasure. I mean, just to mm-hmm. add, you know, in anatomy class, do we actually dissect the clitoris? Yeah, we've never had a lesson that focused on female genitalia. Yeah, so yeah. all we know is the external, there's yeah. the vulva, there's the yeah. labia folds, and then on the inside, you have the vagina, mm. and then the uterus and the fallopian tube and the ovaries. Yeah, that's it. That was about it. <laughs> yeah, we didn't even cover the clitoris in Yeah, school. correct. And clitoris yeah. is the only organ that the human species has where its only function it's is pleasure, pleasure yeah. and nothing yeah. else. Like in reading up for this episode, I was like, okay, what is sexual health really? Mm-hmm. So I did a quick Google search and then I found the World Health Organization. And they say, sexual health, when viewed affirmatively, requires a positive and respectful approach to sexuality and sexual relationships as well as the possibility of having pleasurable and safe sexual experiences free of coercion, discrimination and violence. Right. You know, I just read the news, talk to my friends, and I look at this definition of what sexual health is and Mm -hmm. what it should be. And I don't think the environment that I am in has been sexually healthy. So earlier in this conversation, we were touching on sex ed, porn, How do you think these things that are in place today really perpetuate some of the problems that we see when it comes to sex? Well, for one, we are still very abstinence-based. So I remember in my time, more than two decades ago, sex ed in my school was because, all right, at primary five, we are going to give out a set of sanitary pads. You're going to have something called menstrual period. And that was about it. And then after that, in sec two, I was in all-girls school and then we were told to go to the multi-purpose hall and watch a video mm-hmm. on abortion mm. and STDs. And that was that. So moving on to today, mm-hmm. we haven't moved very far. Right. So the mm. kids that we have now in school are having something very similar than what I had mm-hmm. 20, 30 years ago. And then, remember the government said that they're going to push out the HPV vaccine. For 13-year-olds. Yeah, across yeah. all boards. Yeah. And then what happened? The parents came yeah. and wrote in and say, you should not do that. Mm. Because it will make our children have sex earlier. I was like, this is cervical cancer prevention. What's going to do with sex? So then the question mm. is, which era did this parent actually grow up in? What kind of thinking are parents now having when it comes to educating their children about the birds and the bees? There's yeah. so many cover-ups for it. That's how human works, right? The more things are covered up, the more you'll find ways to get to the information. And this information sources may not be accurate. 
Yep. And that's why all of us end up with very warped sense of what sex is and what sex is not. Mm-hmm. As a mother now, do you worry about all this? Well, I worry about how she's going to be different from her classmates. So when I wash a butt, I would say, this is your butt. And I wash the vulva, I say, this is a vulva. I don't call names. So sometimes, you know, she points to my husband and mm. say, penis. <laughs> and I say, yes, that's right, that's the penis. So mm. it has become, this is penis, this is the arm, this is the leg. It is a body part. And then if she goes to school and then she see a penis and then she say penis, you know, everybody will just be so awkward around her. Yeah, and she go like, yeah. what's wrong? So this is what I'm worried about, how mm. the world is going to react to her when she's being factual about things. Taking things back to the WHO definition, it ends off saying that sexual health is when sex is free of coercion, mm-hmm. free of discrimination, free mm-hmm. of violence. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you know, reading the news, it's very clear that sexual assault happens very frequently. As a mother who is raising a young daughter, are there any steps that you are taking to educate her on consent? Because sexual violence stems from somewhere. Right. What are some places that you think it stems from? So one of the things that I do notice is that when I have a little baby, and when strangers find it very cute, they are so ready to come and pinch her cheek, touch her arm or something like that. But if I see my girl reacting and she's not ready for this person, I will help her say no. Because when she was non-verbal, she could not say no. But I made a point to draw that boundary. Mm-hmm. So I'll only let her go with someone that she's comfortable with. So let's say this particular auntie and uncle who are visiting have already built up a rapport with her and she's okay to go to their arms, she will be let go. If it's someone who is new to her, someone she's not comfortable with, I will make sure that she's not forced into that. Because growing up, it was very different. Especially during Chinese New Year, <laughs> as a young kid, you will always be asked to call auntie and uncle, whether you like this person or not. You will always be asked to do, shake their hand or mm. give them a goodbye kiss or something like that. And that was without my full willingness. And that made me see how growing up, it was difficult for me to say no because yeah. I was so afraid to offend this other person of certain importance. Yeah, that's the thing because it's like sex is not something that we really address or act upon until we reach a certain age. But at the same time, it's not like magically when you in your teens you suddenly don't recognize what boundaries are. Correct. Yeah, so it has to start earlier, lah. Yeah, some, definitely. Some degree. Definitely. There was an interesting story before COVID when we all can still fly. So we were waiting for our plane. We were going to Australia. So there was this Australian dad and his son who was about maybe three or four. So my daughter was about one at that point in time. Mm. So the boy came and wanted to play my daughter. He reached his arm out and wanted to touch her hand. Mm -hmm. And then the dad said, hey, hang on. Do you ask Mm. for permission before you touch her? I thought that was brilliant. I mean, I haven't seen that in my culture for as long as I remember. I think that's a great way to teach a son. It's just respect for everyone in, in every context. Given the fact that we are in an environment that is not sexually healthy in every sense of that word, right? What are your thoughts on what can be done on an individual level, on a structural level well, even? Um, individual level, mm-hmm. doesn't matter if you're parents, I'm quite sure you're somebody's elder sister, elder brother, uncle or auntie. Right. Can you protect your young ones? Can you teach them how to care for another, how to respect another? I think that's important. On a more structural level, of course, major awareness campaigns... We're still not quite into it yet, but at least, you know, with the recent two years of mental wellness hype, mm-hmm. hopefully this kind of... Discussion gets, about a yeah. so-called taboo topic. Correct. Right. Kind of rise on and mm. hopefully this get more open up. But I guess it all starts with little groups of people who want to advocate for such a topic. You mentioned advocacy mm. and people who do this as a meaningful cause starting to speak up. 
there are definitely, you know, people online who are very sex positive. Right, yes. Um, and advocating for just more openness around sex and mm. around boundaries. Mm. So this is something that's so-called in like the online world. But do you feel like there are other variations in how people are sex positive or not sex positive, whether internationally or in various settings? Well, I would say among the people that I know during my training in Europe, like in Italy, you know, Italy is a Catholic country and Catholics are supposed to be very conservative about this whole sex thing. Yet, they have formed a team to look at sexual wellness for the entire country and how sex ed is to be input in their whole curriculum system. And I see there's like a huge change for a country that is supposedly so staunch and so conservative. I would say this whole sex positivity thing has made a mark in the European countries here and there. That is something that we should pick up on. Not just individual's effort, but effort that is made at the ministry level. I think sometimes people push back on sex positivity because they see these negative examples mm. of people mm. exploiting the yeah. movement mm. to actually go against what the movement is advocating for, which is respect. I mean, it's very distressing. There was once I received a letter from one of my viewers that asked me, so my boyfriend wants me to have anal sex with him but I don't enjoy it. But apparently, his other partners used to enjoy anal sex. Mm. Is there something wrong with me? From my point of view as a fellow female, it was very sad to hear something like that. Why does somebody's self-worth got to tag with whether she likes anal sex or not? So, I mean, these are the things that we've got to be mindful of as we are building this sex positivity. How do we build the self-worth at the same time? How do you build authenticity without being arrogant, without the naiveness? You know, in medical school, we always talk about informed consent. So is there enough knowledge that's available, that's accurate and precise to allow for all of us here to make an informed consent about what sex is and what sex is not? I was quite fascinated when you brought up the example of Italy and their approach to sex ed mm. and making it more comprehensive. Given Singapore's cultural context, mm-hmm. what do you envision an approach to sexual wellness in Singapore being like? Well, it's going to be very, very tricky mm-hmm. um, because different religions have got different boundaries mm. and I guess we are all very cautious about it. To me, I guess the best approach is actually for parents to start learning about it rather than push it to the school. Mm, I see. So it's it's more of like a changing the setting in which we receive this information mm-hmm. because it's so individualized according to one's background. Yeah. Given your training in intimacy mm-hmm. coaching, I wanted to touch a little bit more on sexual wellness in various minority populations. So some populations that came to mind were you know people living with cancer or right. recovered from cancer yes. or people living with physical or intellectual disabilities. Yep. Maybe could you share with us about broadly maybe some considerations that you keep in mind when it comes to sexual wellness for these groups? I think these groups are very marginalised. Yeah. Something was very sad when I was working in a polyclinic. There was this girl who has Down syndrome mm-hmm. and she's in for a contraceptive jab mm. so that in any case she ever gets sexually abused by anyone, she will not get pregnant. Instead of teaching the girl and teaching the society to protect her, yeah. Yeah. We are putting her on a contraceptive jet. Yeah, so mm. um, this is the, where we have to change our mindset as a society. How do we be more inclusive? Mm-hmm. In addition, what about people who are deemed normal and then because of medical condition, there's become a sexual dysfunction. There's also a big group that's been neglected. If I were to have cervical cancer and I have to remove my cervix I, and when I visit my oncologist or gynecologist again and I ask them, how do I have sex again? Most of the patients will, well, they don't get a full response. Yeah. The thing is because most of our training did not include sexuality in the training. 
We are not aware yeah. of how do we help our patients go through that. Let's say if a patient has cancer and has got treatment, we're not just talking about the side effects of the treatment. We are talking also about the loss of self-esteem, the loss of identity. And if a man or woman were to lose a part that is often associated with their gender identity, it becomes even more tricky. So actually a lot of work is needed psychologically for that. When a spouse goes through something like that, the other spouse who is well ends up being the caregiver role. And cancer is a process that takes a couple of years yeah, before yeah. you see and things stabilize. So being in that patient and caregiver role kind of thing upsets the equal loving relationship they had. And that mm-hmm. needs to be mended as well. All these things are not taught in medical school. And of course, we talk about local irritation. Then how do we look for solutions to improve, for example, vagina lubrication. So yeah. beyond lube, what else is there? So yeah. nowadays, they talk about infrared therapy, for example. So there are yeah. a lot of things out there that's yeah. happening in the market. Just that because they are not always on journal articles, mm-hmm. it's not often talked about. Another thing interesting that I learned from my training was, let's say, if this guy, for example, they have a penile cancer and they had to remove their penis, then can this person still have an orgasm? So then there's actually this thing called a prostate massage that you can actually still have an orgasm by massaging the, the prostate. prostate. Yeah. So there are a lot of things around it. It comes back to this whole medicalization of sex, right? Mm-hmm. We, we don't know where to go for these answers and because it has to do with our body and because, you know, cancer in the first place is something that's addressed in a medical setting then that's where we go mm. looking for these answers. But mm-hmm. sometimes we as the medical people don't have these answers. Yeah. You know, before we wrap up, is there anything that you want to close with? Well, I would say whatever topics, it doesn't really matter. The whole thing is, can we provide comfort for our patients when we can't cure our patients? I think that's the most important thing as doctors. 